have your Bibles this morning, we're going to jump back into the book of Jeremiah one last time in the series that we've been in called Comeback, and, uh, and look at specifically Jeremiah 23. We'll be looking at verses 33 to 40 today. So uh, this is the final, and uh, kind of we've last about seven weeks or so, we've been going through different themes in the book of Jeremiah, and looking at how God used Jeremiah to, not only in Jeremiah's life, but also as a kind of a, a mouthpiece to his people to say, hey, I'm calling you back to me, and here's the areas that I'm calling you back that you've kind of wandered off and, and gotten it away from me and, and the purpose that I have for your life. And so we've looked at a lot of really good things, some challenging things about what that looks like in our life, and understanding, obviously, that through Jeremiah's journey, through his personal experience with, with what God was doing, there's some things that have stood out to us that we've kind of em we've embraced, but, but they haven't been easy. And, and like last week, we talked about Jeremiah kind of questioning his calling that God had given him because he went through difficulties, but realizing that God is working in the midst of our pain and our suffering and our struggles. And so today we're going to look at kind of the last piece of this is coming back to God with our agenda. And what I mean by that is that all of us, whether we will admit it or not, we all have an agenda for just about everything in our life. An agenda sometimes is that unspoken assumption or that desired outcome from a situation that we want to happen. And we think it's the best thing for us. And so when we come to a situation, we come with an agenda. Um, and I know this is true. Is one of the things, if you, if you come to a line, which I strongly encourage you to come if, if you're new to, to Antioch, it'll give you an idea of who we are as a church and how we align ourselves with the gospel. But one of the first things that we do in that class is we address the fact that all of us have assumptions about church. So when we walk into a church, whether you know Jesus or you don't, you have, an, a, you have a, an idea or an agenda of what the church is supposed to be. And you have like in your mind, even though you may not articulate, there's bullet points. And you're seeing, are, is this church going to meet my expectations? One of the things that we have to do is we have to be willing to lay down our agenda when it comes to everything. Because many times the agenda that we have isn't necessarily the agenda that God has. And when those two things come in conflict, we get to what we're going to look at in this passage today. We start changing or modifying or saying that God told me this or this is from God and we kind of use that as a way to make ourselves feel like God has told us something or that we have a certain level of authority and even if we were honest with ourselves we might be twisting a little bit of what we think God has said so that we can maintain our agenda anybody ever been around somebody who's come to you and said the Lord told me this we've all had that right and so that's good, God speaks that way, but we always have to be careful because we have to make sure that when you say that God told me this, you're representing the God of the universe. We have to make sure that we get that right. Because what we can many times do is either intentionally or unintentionally, we will mesh our agenda together with what we think God's saying, and then we'll spew it out in a way that really isn't what God wants, but honestly, it's what we want. And we're just slapping kind of God's approval on it to make us feel like this is what God wants from me. Here's an example. I've shared this before. After Kim and I went on our first date, there was a, a friend that I had uh, in college, and we were just good friends. At least that's what I thought. Well, after Kim and I went on, on our first date, she marched into Kim's dorm room and made this pronouncement to Kim. She goes, it's nice that you've gone on a date with him, but God's told me that I'm going to marry him. <laughs> God's told me I'm going to Well, it's funny that God never bothered to tell me that side <laughs> of the whole story. But she makes this announcement, and she uses the phrase, God told me. What was she explaining? She wasn't explaining necessarily what God wanted for her. She was explaining what she wanted, but she was putting the God label on it. And I've shared this before. I wish Kim's response would have been so much different, but her response was, have Adam. That was kind of her response, like, we'll see how this goes. So obviously, she won. I'm married to her and not to this other gal. But all of us have had that. We've had that experience, right, in our life where 
where either we say something or somebody else says something, and we're not necessarily sure, is that God's agenda, or is that just our agenda kind of, kind of clothed in what we are saying is what God wants for us? That's what they were doing back in the book of Jeremiah. That's what God's people were doing. And in this passage specifically, we're going to look at these verses together, verse 33 to 40. What, what happens is there's some things that they do in, in addressing how God, what they would kind of frame as God saying stuff. And you'll see that as God kind of works with Jeremiah here, he's showing what's really going on and what they're really saying, which I think sometimes we have to understand is what we do as well. So let me read through these verses, and then we'll walk through this whole concept of agenda together. So I'm actually reading today from, normally I use what's called the ESV translation, but this is the New Century uh, version, which I think is a little bit more clear on this passage, so I'm going to read from that today. So starting in verse 33, it says, Suppose the people of Judah, a prophet or a priest, asks you, Jeremiah, what is the message from the Lord? You will answer them and say, You are heavy, a heavy load to the Lord, and I will throw you down, says the Lord. It's an interesting response from God. Going on, verse 34. A prophet or a priest or one of the people might say, This is the message from the Lord. That person has lied. So I will punish him and his whole family. This is what you will say to each other. What did God uh, answer or what did the Lord say? But you will never again say the message of the Lord because the only message you speak is your own words. You have changed the words of our God, the living God, the God, the, uh, the, the Lord all-powerful. This is how you should speak to the prophets. What answer did the Lord give you, or what did the Lord say? But don't say the message from the Lord. If you use these words, this is what the Lord says, because you've called it a message from the Lord, though I told you not to use these words, I will pick you up and throw you away from me along with Jerusalem, which I gave to your ancestors and to you, and I will make a disgrace of you forever. Your shame will never be forgotten. Aren't you glad you came to church today? God is very specific in what he's saying and very pointed because of what's happening. Literally what was happening is people would use the phrase in their language, this is the message of the Lord. Other translations say the oracle or the burden of the Lord. And they would use this phrase, and it was almost like, you know, if you've been in church for a while, remember kind of the old King James, thus saith the Lord? You know that phrase, and you're like, oh, better listen now, right? Because this is, this is the word. That's what they were doing. But, but what would follow wasn't what God was saying. It was a take on what God was saying. It was an adjustment, or it was a flat-out lie that they just wanted that kind of covering to make it look like this is what God was saying. And it's important for you and I to look at this today because this challenges the agenda we always bring to the table with God about what we think our life's supposed to be about and what God's agenda is for our life. And so when we look at this passage, I want to start with four things specifically from what's going on in the passage of how do we respond to the message of God? How do we respond? Now, the best way for us to apply this passage today, because we don't have Jeremiah walking around speaking the words of Scripture, but we do have Scripture itself in the form of the Bible. And so really for us to apply today is, is how do we respond to the message that God gives us through his word, either through reading the word or through a message? How do we respond to that when we hear that, when we're confronted with the truth of what God wants to do? What do we, how do we respond? There's a number of ways it's clear in this passage, the way they responded and I think the way we respond. The first one is this, comes in the form of this question. Do we mock what God says? And you think, I would never do that. But it starts off in verse 33. It says, Jeremiah, they would say, what is the message from the Lord? Now, almost the way that their response to Jeremiah, because if you remember, if we've gone through Jeremiah, he wasn't very popular because he would speak the truth of what God says, and people didn't want to hear that. So they had come to a place where they're almost mocking him and mocking God because their response is almost like, come on, Jeremiah, what's the message of the Lord? And then when Jeremiah would share it, they're like, yeah, right. 
It was almost like they didn't take Jeremiah seriously. They didn't take God seriously. And we know that in the progression of the book of Jeremiah and God's people, they weren't taking God seriously. And because of that, they kept going down a road that eventually is going to lead to their own demise. But they weren't listening. They weren't listening to the warnings that God gave them over and over and over through Jeremiah. And they just kind of downplayed it and they didn't respond. What is that? It's arrogance. It's this idea that you know better than what God does. So I want you to remember really important numbers. It's the, it's the number 473. So 473 is a very significant number, and it's a significant number to us, but that represents people's lives that didn't have to die. So all of us are familiar with the, the story of the Titanic and what happened, and that a ship was built that was unsinkable. At least that's what everybody's perception was. And so obviously on its maiden voyage, we know the story that an iceberg obviously determined that it was sinkable. But throughout the, the history and how the stories have come out of the Titanic, we know for a fact that when the original distress calls went out and the, the crew and the captain put out abandoned ship, which took them a while, but even the first calls to abandon ship, people ignored it. Because in their mind, they're on the most amazing ship they've ever seen. It can't be sunk. It can't, it can't go down. Nothing can happen to it. We're invincible, so it can't be true that the captain's saying that we need to abandon ship and get to lifeboats. So many people didn't they never got to the lifeboat 473 are the number of seats that were still available on the lifeboats that left the titanic before it sank over 1500 people lost their lives but there's 473 lives that didn't have to end if people would have done what listened and not thought oh that's never going to happen to me and in a sense mock the words of the captain that says we're going down when God speaks into our lives, we don't get to just kind of like, ah, yeah, it might be a message from the Lord. We have to seriously take it in and say, God, are you saying this to me? Is this applied to my life? Is this what's true for me? Because if it is, then I have to respond. Why? Because you're giving me a warning that's going to save me from something down the line that could destroy my life. They were doing this thousands of years ago, and we still struggle with this today in our lives. Second thing, look at verse 34. When we hear this, the message that comes from God, do we try to control it? So people were saying that phrase, this is the message from the Lord, which means they were saying this is the message using again this idea. If I say this, then I can control it. I can, I can maneuver it. I can manipulate it. And I can do this in a way that not only gives me a sense of control, it gives me control over, over, over other people. I mean, think about that. When somebody says, this is what God told me, or this is a word for you from the Lord, there comes a huge responsibility because if you're humble you're going to say oh then i've got to listen to this which you do but then there's always that moment where you say god i need to test this i need to check this out if this is right but if we want to control it then sometimes people live in fear like oh wow they're speaking on behalf of the lord never bothering to go back and look at the bible to say is this true with what god said about my life and what's true so but think about that how do we use this concept of trying to control what comes from God in our lives. Well, what happens is that we tend to read our agenda into what God is doing and try to spin it in such a way that it gives us the justification for what we want to be true of God. We credit to God a lot of stuff that God has never said and God has never pointed out. In fact, so much so in the church, you can find uh, books and pastors and teachers and theologians that will say the exact opposite of each other and claim this is from God. In fact, I just made a really, really short list of things that I have heard that people have said and justified that this is what God is saying. I've heard people say that God wants you to be rich. I've also heard people say God says that being rich is a sin. 
and argued on both sides. This is what God is saying. Slightly confusing, yes? I've heard people say that God hates the gay community. I've also heard people say that God loves the gay community. Wait, wait, wait. Does he love the gay community or does he hate them? But God, is, is God somehow confused? I've heard this. People say God is a Democrat. Others say God is a Republican. <laughs> I've heard people justify this is God's candidate. This is careful. And we, like, we argue this is what God has said. Be careful. Because what are we doing? We're, we're weeding in our own persuasion of what we think is right, and then we're stamping God's approval on it to make it have some kind of authority. I've heard people say that in the end, no one goes uh, to hell. And I've also people heard people say in the end, few people go to heaven. Wait, wait, wait. And crediting that to God. Wait a second. Is God confused? I've heard people say that Jesus has revealed to them when he will return. But I've also heard people say from Scripture that nobody knows the day or the hour. Wait, wait, wait. Which one is it? I've heard people say that God is a USC fan. I've heard other people say that God is a UCLA fan. We know that the latter is true and will forgive those that were a part of the former. But how do we know? Is God conflicted? Is God confused? No. What do we do? We take our personal agenda and we spin it our way to make it look like God is on our side fulfilling our agenda. So what are we doing? We're trying to control his word. We're not being objective. We're not having humility when we approach it. And therefore, we're doing exactly what God was warning against in this passage. Then verse 36 is the third, third reality of how we respond, and that is that we actually flat out change it. We change it to justify our agenda for our life. So verse 36, it says, The only message you speak is your own words. You have changed the words of our God, the living God, the Lord, all-powerful. You've taken the instruction that God has, has, and you've downplayed it and changed it so that somehow it doesn't apply to you. It's either it doesn't mean what it means is what we'll say, or it, it doesn't really apply to my situation. God was talking about these people. One of the things that I've been doing lately that has been relatively surprising to me is I've, done, I've been doing research lately on the difference between when somebody professes to be a Christian and then someone who is a non-Christian, the difference between the way we live our lives. So when you read through the Bible and you understand the, the transforming work that God wants to bring to bear in our lives when we say yes to Jesus, the assumption is there would be a great difference between someone who is a follower of Jesus and somebody who doesn't follow Jesus in the way that they live their lives, right? Isn't that an accurate assumption? One person agrees with me. Yes, that is an accurate assumption. But the tragedy is in our culture today, there is very little difference between people who profess to be Christians and those who don't in terms of the way we live our lives. There's not much difference. And so one of the things I was reading through that I was shocked, and I had to reread this a number of times to make sure that I was understanding this statistic. So there was a research company that did some research trying to understand particularly what we cl classify, and this is not just to hear me, this is not just a pigeonhole one age group, but this is in terms of millennials, but this applies to, I think, a lot outside of millennials. So we're talking about people in their mid to late 20s into their 30s would be cl classified as millennials. But they, they did a statistic and they, were, they said of that age group that were in this survey, which was a large survey, those who were sexually active prior to making a commitment to follow Jesus in their life prior to 92% of them continue to be sexually active outside of marriage after they became a Christian. Just let that sink in for a moment. That means that only 8% who went from being a non-Christian to being a Christian actually allowed their faith in Jesus to actually control or limit or outline their sexual behavior. Yeah, you guys responded just like first service. It got really uncomfortable in here. I'll tell you why it gets uncomfortable, because when we get specific about sin, that's when it gets awkward. But let me just, let me just unpack what's really going on in that statistic. 
here's the statistic. In our culture, we have bought into this concept that sex any way, anyhow, any time that I want it is for my benefit and my pleasure. Therefore, it is part of the agenda of my life to experience pleasure in that area. Therefore, when you come to Jesus, there's a conflict. Because now God is saying, no, 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 no. There's a context that I've created sex for that is better than what you could experience outside of that. And I want you to live within those limitations for your for the, your your betterment for your future spouse and for my purpose in your life and the tension comes when we say to god no no because my agenda is better than your agenda and i'm going to continue i will surrender other parts of my life but i won't surrender this one what is it it's an agenda that says in order for me to be happy i have to be able to have the freedom to have sex when i want with whoever i want however i want that's the culture we live in but when, when you read through the scriptures, and we won't get into it, Jesus is very specific. Sex is a good thing, made in a great context, and it's called marriage. But when we remove it from that, we lose what God has for us. But the beauty is, even when we look at 92%, God's grace and mercy covers every one of us in our failures. And it's never too late to begin to live the way God wants you to live. I'll move on, because you guys are looking at me like, please, Pastor John, I'm feeling really awkward right now. Can you please talk about something else? See why it's important to just pause for that, because that's the original, the original lie that led to the original sin is that very motivation. You remember in the Garden, garden of Eden, you remember when, when Eve was confronted by the serpent? What did the serpent say to Eve before she took the fruit? He said this, did God really say? So what was he going to do? He was going to change what God said to justify the moment and we have a tendency to do that today then there's the fourth reality and this is really what our posture should be when we hear something that god brings to our life that's just the truth of his message to us and that is this question do we seek it do we seek god's truth and god's message from our life because this is what it says in verse 35 and 37 this is what you should say what did the lord answer or what did the lord say or what answer did the lord give it isn't telling god what he's supposed to say it's asking what did god say what does he say about my life? What does he say about the way I spend my money, the career that I'm in, the house that I live in, my sexuality? What does God say about those things? Not, God, I want you to say this. God, I want you to tell me what you want for my life by laying down my agenda and letting him bring sometimes correction. So over about the last couple of years, Kim and I walked through a season where God brought some interesting correction to our lives in terms of our own healthy kind of spiritual walk with jesus and the rhythm that we live our lives in and that is and it came in a really it caught me off guard and it caught kim off guard but but you know you it's interesting you you think everything's going really well there's little things that god comes along and he, he'll adjust things in your life and he'll correct you and there's sin and you got to confess that but then there's these big uh, blind spots that you're like i'm good until god graciously comes and slaps you right across the head and says hey listen this is not good and one of those is in the area of this thing called sabbath Sabbath is a really interesting thing in the church. We don't know what to do with it. But Sabbath is something that's interesting because what it, what it does to us is that it says the Bible, and by the way, when you read through the Bible, people always say, ah, Sabbath, that's an Old Testament law. We're not under that anymore. Remember what Jesus said, that the, that man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the man, so I can do whatever I want to do. That's not what Jesus was saying. There's a rhythm of life that God has created human beings to live in. So important to that God himself, when he created everything, do you remember what he did? On the seventh day, what did he do? Nothing. Do you think God needed to rest on the seventh day? I don't think so. He's God. 
But he did, why? As a pattern to say, listen, humanity, this is the way you're supposed to live your life. So it's reading through some books and some conferences that Kim and I were at uh, over a period of time. We're like, okay, God's speaking volumes to us. We are not honoring the Sabbath, which means we're not taking off one day a week where we don't do work. Now, we've had historically, we have a day off, and the staff has a day off. It's called Friday. That's our Sabbath. And we were Sabbathing. No, we weren't. Because I'll tell you what, Friday, most Fridays consisted of, we would get up and we would sleep in, which was great. But then when the day started rolling, there was a list of all these errands that we had to run that we couldn't get done on the other six days, so we had to do it. And half of them were church-related. But I'm just going to the store. Really, it's for me, but yeah, there's these stores I have to go to and do this, and I have to run this errand. And it's not really work because I'm not at the office, and so there's all this justification. It's really my Sabbath. No, it's not. We realized that what would happen is by the end of the day, we would end up half the time in the office doing work that was not supposed to be done on the Sabbath. So it was about six or eight months ago, we decided we're going to actually take a Sabbath. We're actually, not legalistically, but we're going to honor the Lord, which means that we are going to take one day off a week. We are not going to work. The only real work that I will do on that day is if somebody goes through tragedy or a death occurs, that's the only thing I'm going to do. Everything else can wait. That's hard. But we do it. Fridays, we take a Sabbath. In fact, on Thursday night, sometimes can we get a little frantic. I am making sure I check my email for the last time around 9 o'clock at night. Anything that Kim's to do, in fact, we used to like to catch up, do laundry. Kim will not do laundry. She'll be doing it late into Thursday night because when we wake up on Friday, it's Sabbath. We're not going to do anything. That's a hard shift. But you know what we've discovered? This is crazy. I didn't, I, I, you do the math and it doesn't add up. We are more productive in the other six days because we've honored a Sabbath in the last eight months than we've been in all of our lives. Kim will tell you the same thing. Because we've stopped. In fact, you know you've had a good Sabbath, but at the end of the day, you're bored. And this happened Friday. And the reason we were bored is because you know there's a million things you could do, but you choose not to do them. Why? Because I'm going to pause. I'm going to rest. And you know what happens when, you, when we go to bed on Friday night and we wake up Saturday morning? We are ready to go. Ready to go. Not exhausted, not overwhelmed, but what rejuvenated. Why? Because we actually took that time. Now, for you, you might say, oh, it's not a big deal. But yeah, it is a big deal because we, what do we honor in our culture? Busyness, stress, full calendar. Got to do a million things. Why? Because that makes me feel significant. God says, no. Have a Sabbath. In fact, this is interesting. A.J. Svoboda wrote a book. Great book. He's a great thinker. He wrote a book called Subversive Sabbath. You, we would, if you struggle with resting, you should read that book because it will convict you because he will show you throughout church history and throughout the scriptures, Sabbath is something that never went away. In fact, this is what's interesting. He, he had a quote that he, in a conference we were in was full of a bunch of leaders. This is what he said. This hit me right between the eyes. He says, if I violate the other nine commandments, I get fired. This is true for me as a pastor. If I sleep with someone who's not my wife, if, I don't, if I'm lying and bearing false witness, if I do all these kind of things, I'm going to lose my job. But as a pastor, if I violate the Sabbath, I get a raise. I do. Man, look at, look at how much work he's getting done. He's just going, and we honor that, right? The person who's going to work after hours and come in early and do the extra stuff, we're going to reward them. What are we doing? We're just rewarding sin because they won't take any time off. I'll move on to sexual sin and Sabbath. Maybe something's going on today. But that was something that came out of left field. I, I thought, oh, we're good, we're good. God says, no, you're not good. And since we've lived in that rhythm, we've been much more healthy in a personal way. So I don't know what it is for you, but sometimes God comes along and says, do you really want to hear the message from the Lord today? Do you want to know what I need to say to you? 
because it's not what you're going to want to hear, but it's exactly what you need to hear. So now, how do, we, how do we embrace God's agenda? How do we lay down our agenda and actually embrace God's agenda instead of trying to control it or manipulate it or change it? Three things. The first one is this. This is not complicated, but it's hard. Be honest about your agenda. You have an agenda. Be honest about it. And your agenda comes in the form is this is what you want your life to be about. This is what I think my life's supposed to look like. This is what's going to make me happy. Sometimes we don't want to be honest. And God's just waiting for the day where he, we just admit what he already knows is true, that we are driving an agenda in our life, and it may conflict with God what God's agenda is for our life. Just be honest. Because ultimately, God's the one that's going to guide you into where you're supposed to be. Listen to Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2. A person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. And here's a verse we love to all quote, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. His wisdom, his agenda, his will, let him determine that. That's hard for us. But what if you and I could be totally honest about our agenda? That we could actually say to God, God, this is what I really think is going to make me happy. This is what I, even though it seems to be in conflict, this is, what if we could just be honest? That's the starting point. That's the starting point because then God knows, okay, I got him being honest. I got him bringing to the surface and not manipulating and just being honest. I don't know what it is, but somehow we think that we can do a sales job on the God of the universe. That we can somehow fool him into thinking we're all about his purpose, but we're actually working an angle. We're working, we're like super amazing salespeople that are going to fool God into thinking, oh, wow, that's my will for your life. Don't, it doesn't work, but we do it. Maybe you're like me. I, if you're a salesman, please forgive me, okay? But I can't stand salespeople who are manipulative. I just can't. And I know probably 99% of them are because you've got to sell a product. But I really admire the 1% will come along. Just be honest. Just tell me what you're working for, what your angle is. Don't try to, try to make it sound like it's something that it's not. One of these examples was when we were up in Oregon, I, every house that we lived in, I, I love, it's, it's therapeutic for me. It's probably because I'm a control freak. Is I love to, to like work with my lawns and make them green and, and just it's just something I love, love to do. And it's, it's, maybe it's an obsession, I don't know, but maybe it's because as a pastor I don't get to control a lot of things so maybe I can control my front yard, right? That's, that's it, I'm just confessing to you that's what it is. But so one day I was out in my front yard and in Oregon, you know, you, you can go through long periods of time where literally because it's so cold you don't mow your lawn. Literally four months, I remember, like, my lawnmower doesn't get used. And then, then the spring hits, and it starts to warm up, and the rains are still going, but everything grows like crazy. So your grass is beautifully green, nice and full. And so I was out in the yard one day working, and this guy comes walking down the street. And I knew, like, the majority of our neighbors. I knew he wasn't from the neighborhood. He looked like he was kind of sort of more dressed up than you should be just walking down the street. And so he comes right over to me. I'm like, ah, salesperson. It's like, you just know your radar's on, right? But he starts off with this. He goes, man, he goes, your lawn is amazing. And I'm like, well, thanks. I, I really enjoy doing this. And then he starts telling me. He goes, I'm looking up and down this, this whole street. There's no, no lawn as, most, as beautiful as yours. And I'm like, wow. And he's just telling me all the reasons why my grass is great. And then he pauses and he says, but I'm like, oh, here it comes. And then he starts trashing my lawn. He starts walking around and pointing at the one blade of grass that's still brown, right? And the one little patch that hasn't grown in, right? And whatever it is, he's going, he's like, and you really need to do this, and you need this kind of fertilizer. And then as he's going through all this, out of his back pocket comes his business card. I'm like, this, I, I was nice to him, but I said, listen, I said, I know what you're trying to do. I know you're trying to sell me your product and your service, 
But listen, I'm going to be honest with you. If you would have walked up to me and not told me how great my lawn was, and you would have just walked up and said, hey, I am a salesperson, and this is the product I'm selling, and it might benefit your grass, I said to him, I might have bought it. I might have actually got your product. I might have signed up for your service, but I'm not going to simply because you tried to manipulate me. And I remember, he, I don't think he's ever gotten that response from anybody before. And in fact, he didn't really talk to me much after that. In fact, I think he took his card back and kept going down the street. In fact, I saw him in our neighborhood a few weeks later. He didn't bother to come by our house anymore. I was offended. Why didn't you come try to convince me again? Because he knew he wasn't going to. Think about that. The silliness that you and I will come before the God of the universe and pretend that we don't have an agenda. And we all do. And God says, I know what your agenda is, and I could tell it to you better than you could tell it to me, but please, just be honest. Be honest about the agendas that we bring to God. That's where we start. Second thing, the second thing that we do embracing God's agenda is we have to embrace humility. Pride always prevents us from fully abandoning ourselves to what God wants in our lives. Pride always covers up and tries to hide the true agenda that we have. There's always a battle in our lives for what God wants and what we want. And, and eventually you will realize that when you actually want what God, God wants, you want the best thing for your life. You think you want the best thing for your life, but at the end it won't be. Perfect example. Then you're like, oh, it's not fair. He was God. Jesus was fully God and fully man, which means he had all the capacities and, and in a sense, the limitations of humanity as a human being. And when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he goes to the cross, do you remember the dialogue he has with the Father? He makes a really powerful statement. He says, not my will, not my agenda, but yours be done. What was Jesus saying in that moment? Jesus knew where he was going. He knew what, what was next. He knew the suffering he was going to go through. He knew what the cross was going to be like. He knew there was going to be death. He knew there was going to be the weight of sin on him. He knew what he was going to go through. And in his humanity what suffering I'm going to have to go through, but for the sake of the world and the sake of all people, not my will, but your will be done. That's the same thing that God asks of us. Now, when you look back, think about this. What if Jesus, in that moment, decided, ah, it's too painful. I don't want to go to the cross. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer for a bunch of people who don't even care about me. I don't, I don't want to do this. I'm, I'm pure. I'm I'm righteous. There's nothing wrong with me. How, why should I die for them? What if in that moment Jesus says, no, 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 not your will, but my will? You and I wouldn't be here today. You and I wouldn't be here. What was Jesus doing? He was laying down an agenda for a greater one. And that's what God calls for you and I. There's a greater agenda that God has for our life. Are you willing to lay down your agenda so that God could do what he's going to do? Listen to what Peter says about pride and how sometimes it gets in the way. He says, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, in the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elder. All of you, clothe yourselves with what? Humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Man, pride is nasty. You know what pride does? Pride always tries to compensate for what's inside. It tries to cover up what's inside. And many times when, when you and I sense God pushing in on our agenda, and our agenda is getting pushed back, Instead of humbly saying, God, you're right, here's my agenda, you know what we have a tendency to do? We push back harder. We kind of like, we, we get prideful, and pride kind of steps in, and what does pride do? It tries to protect and hang on to the agenda, because if we lose that ground, then we're not going to be happy, because we don't trust God that he actually knows better. So I, I know the conflict of agenda is something you can probably, if you trace it back, you can see it in your life from when you were young. I can remember when I was five years old, in our neighborhood, 
the, the, the end-all toy that every kid wanted was the, this size, big size, like a foot tall Superman action figure. That was like it. That was like the present that you wanted for Christmas or your birthday. And I remember my friend, he lived like four houses down. He got it. And I was like, oh, man. He became my best friend right away. I was hanging out with all the time. And all the kids, seriously, we would all hang around. His name was Jason. Jason had Superman. If Jason had Superman, then he was our friend. So we'd play. And then I remember after probably about three or four weeks, I talked him into letting me borrow Superman for a night. It's like he's going to come. Superman's going to come have a sleepover at my house. And Jason's like, yeah, you can have Superman. Just make sure you bring him back tomorrow. I'm like, ah, I promise. I'll bring him back tomorrow. And so I got home that night. Normal routine, you know, you get home and it's bath time at night. Superman, I'm not letting Superman leave my side. In fact, he's in the bath with me. I'm soaking his clothes and everything. And then I remember there's this little ledge we had in our hallway next to our, our heater. And I put him on that because that's where the warmest part of the house was. So, Mr. so Superman would dry. And then my mom sees Superman sitting there drying. And she's like, wow. And my mom's pretty smart, you know. And she's like, Superman. She goes, where did you get that? I said, Jason gave it to me. And she's like, Jason gave it to you? I'm like, yeah. I said, can you believe that? I asked him and he said, Superman is mine. I can keep him. She goes, are you sure that Jason didn't just say you could borrow him? And I said, no, Jason, I tell you, mom, Jason said I could have Superman. And she looks at me and what do you think mom does who's smart? She's all, well, let me call Jason's mom and ask her if Jason, in fact, did say that you could keep Superman. So what do you think my response was? Uh, no, Mom, you don't really need to call Jason's mom. I mean, really, I think maybe he did say I could just borrow Superman for a night. And, of course, she's, you know, you're, just so you know, when you're growing up, your mom is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And then when you get older and you get married, your wife takes on that role, okay? <laughs> Guys, just so you know, okay? So obviously the next morning, guess where Superman went? He went right back to Jason's house. But see, what was my agenda? If I had Superman, I'm going to be happy. And so I'm going to make up a story. And I'm going to push back on the truth, which the truth was I was supposed to borrow it. I was going to say, no, I'm, I'm going to own this thing. Think about that in our lives, how pride will enter in to try to hang on and defend the agenda that God is wanting us to lay down in our life. And then there's a final, final step in, in embracing God's agenda, and that is embracing this thing called repentance. So repentance is really important. It's this concept of turning from the life that we used to live to the way that God wants us to live. It is a, it's a, it's a mental and spiritual reality of turning back to God, which is the whole concept of comeback. It's coming back to God. But we, you and I have to understand what repentance looks like is different than what we really think it is. Here's the reality of what repentance is. Repentance has to do with the turning back towards God as he transforms us from the inside out. This is important. Why? Because we think that repentance is behavior modification. Which means I'm just going to stop doing the bad things that I used to do and start doing the good things that I'm supposed to do and then God will accept me. That's not the way it works. That's why in, 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 first, or in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, remember Paul says that we are supposed to be what? Living sacrifices. And in the process of sacrificing ourselves for God's purpose, then what happens is a transformation happens in us by the renewing of our mind. And the result of that renewing and transformation is what? Then we will know the will of God, God's agenda. It isn't 
changing our behavior or modification. It's being transformed. That's what repentance is after. It's turning so that there's something inside of us that changes. Here's the danger when you and I look at repentance as just behavior modification. We can look like a Christian on the outside, but on the inside, we are far from God. We've just become proficient at modifying our behavior. That will not hold water with God. Why? Because God is not interested in your behavior only. You know what he's interested in? He's interested in your heart. Because he knows if he gets your heart, your behavior will follow. But the tragedy is, even if, you, if he gets your behavior, eventually your behavior will revert back to what it was. It always does. Look at the Old Testament. When they, when they were after living by the law, they couldn't do it. That's what the, one of the reasons the law is in existence is to demonstrate we're sinful. We can't do it. Even in our best efforts, we can't modify our behavior. We always go back to our own nature. This is important. What does God want? God wants our hearts. And repentance is about that transformation. So let me give you a story from the scriptures. I've shared this before, but really great comparison between two people who were dealing with the same issue in their life and the way they responded to Jesus was the exact opposite. So the first one had to do with about how do I modify the way I live my life? How do I change my behavior so that God thinks I'm good? So we don't even have his name. All we have is we call him the rich young ruler. That's what we call him. But we don't know what his name is. But we know about his encounter. When, when this man came to Jesus, he came with a question. And his question was, how do I get eternal life? And so you, you can tell by the story when you read it, this guy came with an agenda. And here's his agenda. I want Jesus to tell me to get eternal life, I just got to be a good person. If I'm a good person, then I'll be good. And so when Jesus' first response back to this guy is, well, have you kept the law? And you had to know in that moment, this guy's like, yes! That's the exact response I was looking for. So Jesus starts listing some of the law. And you can probably, I mean, I'm reading into this, but you can probably see in that guy's mind, he's like, yep, check, 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 I'm good. Because his response back to Jesus, I've kept all of that since I was a kid. I've obeyed the law. So he's thinking, I am doing great now. I have really modified my behavior. God thinks I'm great. Jesus accepted me. But then the story turns because then Jesus looks him in the eye and says, you still lack one thing. And then he says this, he says, he says, take your possessions, sell them, and give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. Anybody recall how the story ends? It says, then the rich young ruler did what? He went away sad because he had great wealth. So what was Jesus looking after? It wasn't, uh, just so you know, it really wasn't, it was about money, but it wasn't about money, it was about his heart. And Jesus knew it didn't matter if you kept all of the law. If I didn't have your heart, it didn't matter. And what's holding your heart right now is this thing called money. And if you can't let go of it, then you're not going to be able to follow me. So you're going to have to let it go. But he was too stuck in what? I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to modify things. And Jesus says, I'm not interested in your modifying your behavior. I'm interested in your heart. And there's a story of another guy. We get his name. We know his name. And the tragedy is we know him for something that's really never really true of who he is. His name's Zacchaeus, and all we think about Zacchaeus is he was a short guy, right? Who cares how tall or how short he was? Here's the reality. Something in Zacchaeus was so desperate for something different in his life because he had the same issue this rich young ruler had. He was wealthy. But his wealth came at the expense of other people because he was legally allowed to be a thief. He was allowed to steal as much money as he wanted from the Jews as long as he gave his taxes to the Romans. So he was extremely wealthy, but he had no friends. He was desperate for a different way of life. He had everything that money could buy, but he had nothing. And Jesus comes walking along, and, and Zacchaeus is so desperate. Here's the power of the sycamore tree, by the way. It has nothing to do with his height. He was so desperate to see Jesus that in the midst of the crowd, he climbs into a tree to get a better view so Jesse could see Jesus. 
And as you know the story, when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, he invites himself over. That's a little intimidating. When the God of the universe says, I'm going to have lunch at your house today, right? So, and here's the thing. We have all the record of the rich young ruler and Jesus talking. We have their specific words. But you know what? With Zacchaeus and Jesus, we don't have what Jesus said to Zacchaeus, other than he invited himself over. We don't have the dialogue. We don't have any of that. But we have the result of the dialogue. The result of the encounter is what? Zacchaeus, a wealthy man, says to Jesus, I'm going to sell my possessions and give my money to the poor. And on top of that, every person that I've ever ripped off in my life, I'm going to pay them back four times what I stole from them. Now that is significant because the law only required two times. But Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back four times. What's happening there? Zacchaeus is fully surrendering himself because he knew that his issue was money, and because of that, that his, his agenda is laid before Jesus, and without any dialogue instruction from Jesus, we see Zacchaeus spontaneously responding with, here's my agenda, and now it belongs to you. What's the difference between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus went away happy because he'd been transformed, and the rich young ruler went away sad because he'd only tried to modify his behavior. It's a huge difference. And when we come to the end of this series, one of the things that is so important is that God calls us back not so that you and I can try to be better people. God calls us back because our hearts have wandered. The reason that our behavior is wrong, the reason that we've gone outside of what God wants for our life, isn't because it's behavior-related. It's heart-related. We think that something else is going to make us happy, so our hearts go after it, only to realize it's not what we thought it was, and now we've walked away from God, and God says, no, you're only going to end in destruction. Come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me. Turn and let me transform your heart and give you a new heart so that all of what you're supposed to be and do in life comes from the inside out, not from the outside in. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and join me. We're going to conclude with one last song. But before we, we do that, I, I wanted just to take a couple moments as we conclude this series that it's so important for us to respond in a way that, that as we walk away from this, we just don't hit a, hit a period at the end of this and forget about it. Because what determines whether we really let the message of the Lord sink in is what, not what happens now. It's what happens in an hour. It happens in a day. It happens in a week. It's what we've taken with us and what God has continued to do in our lives. So maybe you're, you fall into one of two categories that you're here today, and that is that you have come to know Jesus in your life. But if you were honest with yourself right now, that you know that you've either wholeheartedly stepped away from God or there's parts of your life where you've just disconnected from God and you've walked after something else to bring you happiness. God is calling you back. Or maybe you, you've never come to know Jesus, so this comeback thing, you're like, I never came to the first place, so how do I come back? But you'll know this is true about your life. That although you've never come to know Jesus, you know that God has been pursuing you and you've tried to deny it, to deny it at every turn, but you know that God is still after you. In fact, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, there's probably a good chance that you're here against your will. Maybe on the outside, you're like, yeah, I'm going to go to church inside. You're like, I don't want to be there because I actually might encounter God, and that's the last thing I want to do. But God knew better, and God has an agenda for your life that is greater than yours, and he's calling you to surrender here today. This is what I, I, I want to do, and I'm, hear me, I'm going to use this as an example because I think this just demonstrates. It isn't that this is the key issue, but it just demonstrates the issue for all of us. God's desire is that you and I would lay down our agenda once and for all and let him determine what our life's supposed to look like. When you say yes to Jesus, we are supposed to do what? We are supposed to die to ourselves. Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. 
You don't get to hang on to your life. You've got to lose your life. And then you discover what life is all about. So what does that look like? That means that the agenda that you have laid out for your life has to be laid before God. It has to be put on the altar and see what is left after God deals with it. So this came to my mind this week because of a story that I read about a woman that just blew me away. There's a woman who a couple days ago was reading an article and in this next month, she's going to be deployed to the Middle East as a missionary. She's 75 years old and she's been retired for a number of years. But in her retired years, she came convinced to this reality not done with me yet. There's still more that I'm supposed to be doing in my life. And so this 75-year-old woman, in fact, when you, when you read the article, I don't even know her name. I don't even know the country she's going to. She's going to the Middle East. She's going to a closed country. And because of security risks, they can't even release her name. But they told the story, and she, in her own words, explained the journey that God led her on to this point where she realized there are people who haven't accessed the gospel, and she still has life in her body and has the ability to do what God's calling her to do. And so retirement isn't about hitting cruise control and doing what's safe and easy. It's about going and living on the edge for what God wants to do. And she may die of old age, but she may die before then. But you know what? She'll die doing God's will for her life. And there will be the result of her life, I guarantee it. There will be somebody standing before Jesus someday because this 75-year-old woman said, I'm not going to be retired and just kind of go nicely into the sunset. I'm going to live every day of my life for God's agenda, not my agenda. Why do I say that? Because we live in a country right now where the gold standard is how you retire. Our working life and our ordered life is all to position us to do nothing. It is. We, do, we work really hard right now so that when we retire, we don't have to do anything. We can move to anywhere we want to move to and do anything that we want to do or do absolutely nothing. But you know what? I'm just going to tell you, this is the example, that's not biblical. There's no retirement in the Bible. You know what retirement is? It's when Jesus takes you home. Now, the reason I'm using this example is that we all have an agenda. We all have an idea of how we're going to live our life. We have kind of a script. I'm going to work this job this many years. I'm going to make this much money. I'm going to drive this kind of car. I'm going to live in this kind of house. And then I reach this age. I know I'm going to have enough to retire. And then it's me time. As if it hasn't been your time the whole time you've been alive. But what if your perspective changed and said, maybe God has an agenda that's greater than my agenda. And that uh, the reason I'm still alive is because God still has more to accomplish through me. And the reason I'm inspired by this is my dad is 81 years old and he still hasn't slowed down. He's a cancer survivor and he still will travel to talk about the kingdom of God and teach leaders to follow Jesus and proclaim the gospel. And he's 81. He tires me out. I'm using this as an example is that not that this, is, this message is not about retirement, but maybe for you it is about retirement. But what if you're in your 20s? What if you're in your 30s? What if you're in your 40s? And you have, an, you have a script that you've been living out, but you haven't bothered to ask God, God, is this your agenda for my life? Is this what you want for me? And honestly, lay that down and be honest about your agenda. Say, God, I know that even though this seems perfect for me, this seems like there couldn't be a better plan for me, I am willing to lay it down for I might find in you there's something greater for my life. You don't have to move to another country to follow God, but you may have to lay down your plans for what you want to do where you live right now and say, God, what is it that you want from me? Because at the end, 
wouldn't you be rather picking up speed when you hit the finish line than just coasting to make sure you have enough energy to cross it? I would rather be picking up speed and let Jesus determine my finish line so that when I go into eternity, I go running towards him, not limping, not kind of going off in this beautiful kind of ideal of what I think my life's supposed to be about, but literally going into his presence, fulfilling his purpose till the last moment of my life. Can you imagine what that would be like? I won't go on, but I can tell you stories of people. I have a professor in college, and I will, and I'll stop. He died of cancer. You know what he was doing till the last breath? He had a parade of former students kept coming to his house to pray for him. But you know what kept happening every time they came to pray for him? He prayed for them. And every student that went to see this guy, the last two months that he was bedridden in his home, dying of cancer, until his last breath, he prayed for God's spirit to fill each person that came and said to fulfill his purpose in their life. And they all walked away in tears, not in sorrow for him, but broken in the fact the man who's going to die from cancer is more concerned about God's purpose in my life than he is about his cancer that's taking his life. Till the last moment, it was God's agenda. And now I'll get off my soapbox and move on, but agenda that you have, will you be willing to lay it down that God might actually raise up to you the agenda he has for your life, just with your eyes closed Lord Jesus we want to come back to you and Lord the biggest part of that is we want to lay down what we define as happiness and embrace what you want we know that you've told us from your word that you are patient and you're patiently waiting for us to come to the knowledge and the fullness of who you are that's why you haven't returned and you want all to come to this opportunity of repentance so that we might know you. So Lord, today we collectively come to you and we surrender our agenda. We don't want to twist your words. We don't want to change your words. We don't want to manipulate your words. We just want your words. And we want to hear it in humility so that, Lord, we might be living out your purpose in our lives so that ultimately, Lord, your glory would be the result of our lives. But Lord, our fulfillment would be the result of us laying down our agenda for yours. So Jesus, as we sing this song, would you seal in us what you're doing so that we might live out different lives as we move forward from this moment. In Jesus' name.